listening to Unpacking Injustice with the Montana Innocence Project. This podcast tells the real stories behind wrongful and unjust convictions and illuminates the complex issues responsible for making our criminal justice system unjust. Today we are bringing you a conversation with Montana Innocence Project Executive Director Amy Sings in the Timber about the bills our organization worked on during the 2023 legislative session. Let's begin unpacking. During this legislative session, the Montana Innocence Project worked to reauthorize and improve exoneree compensation and protect the innocent against eyewitness misidentification and the faulty science of facial recognition technology. The following conversation will examine the outcomes of Senate Bill 464, Senate Bill 397, and House Bill 423. We will learn about the resulting reforms to the criminal legal system, as well as the impact of the reform that did not pass, and how MTIP will move forward in the interim session. Take a listen. Could you begin by introducing yourself and your role with the Innocence Project? My name is Amy Sings in the Timber, and I am the executive director of the Montana Innocence Project. Let's begin by unpacking Senate Bill 464, which was signed into law on May 3rd and addresses eyewitness misidentification. Can you begin by telling us about what this reform does and why it was necessary? Sure. The key components to this particular bill um, are designed to reform eyewitness ID lineup so that it it can be as unbiased and impartial as possible. Um, Right now, well, yeah, I guess right now, it's not fully enacted yet, Um, but it's the state of Montana has been under voluntary uh, compliance for the core best practices for eyewitness ID lineups um, pretty consistently about 80% of counties report being in voluntary compliance, but 80% isn't enough um, when you consider how fraught with, uh, well, position to error and bias can play into eyewitness ID lineups, not for anybody's intention necessarily, just the way our brains work. So um, this particular bill uh, really was trying to set out into uh, codify the way that uh, law enforcement goes about setting up those lineups um, and making certain that each department is doing so. Uh, there are some exceptions. I, I know we got a little bit of uh, pushback, n- not a ton. I mean, honestly, e- even the only law enforcement that showed up um, to speak out in opposition of the bill started out each time by admitting that there's nothing in the bill that isn't uh, in keeping with best practices and that they would want to be able to comply each and every time. There was a little bit of pushback saying that some of those smaller, more um, rural departments might have a challenge due to things like low staffing and um, and, you know, kind of 
the nature of what resources they had available to them at the time. But as we started to talk through all of those things, uh, you know, one of the arguments was that it might be costly, the training and those sorts of things. But the Innocence Project provides um, the training that is a best practice, uh, free of charge. And quite honestly, we would hope that um, law enforcement would be trained on those best practices regardless. Uh, the other part of it was talking about, you know, setting up a particular type of um, blind uh, testing when there was not the requisite number of law enforcement um, on hand. And that's not an issue either, uh, simply because of the uh, ability to be able to use a, um, a photograph method and a blind shuffle on that. So at the end of the day, um, everybody agreed that the best practices are the best practices for a reason and that everybody, it's in everybody's best interest, um, uh, you know, defendants' best interest, law enforcement's best interest, and quite honestly, the best interest of uh, witnesses to make certain that these standards are being held. Um, I got to be honest, we weren't sure that we were going to be successful in getting a full reform bill um, moved through this particular session. And at the end of the day, um, it really was supported by, by some pretty wide margins. So we're grateful for that. Let's move on to Senate Bill 397, the facial recognition bill that was passed by the legislature and is awaiting action from the governor's office. First, can you talk about how facial recognition technology can lead to wrongful arrests? Certainly. So um, facial recognition technology is used, you know, in our everyday lives, we kind of think of it as picking up our iPhone and being able to um, easily access our own personal information without having to remember our passcodes. Um, but it can be a little bit fraught when it's being the same uh, facial recognition technology is being utilized in criminal investigations and, and then of course um, relied upon for prosecutions. So essentially um, there's a couple of studies that have uh, proven that facial recognition technology is not always accurate or consistent Um it's been shown to particularly uh, be unreliable for uh, persons of color and in particular women of color. Uh, and, you know, that alone should give folks pause uh, if we are talking about the possibility of taking somebody's liberty based on some faulty technology. Um, there's privacy issues above and beyond that that I know Montanans uh, take pretty serious and to heart. Um, I will say that this particular bill, we, uh, the Montana Innocence Project, was not um, spearheading this bill. It had already gone through uh, several iterations in the last session and uh, had been discussed in the interim session prior to 23 session. If signed into law, what would Senate Bill 397 do in relation to criminal investigations? So right now, um, the way that this plays out is that law enforcement may use 
the results of facial recognition technology to conduct criminal investigations, but an, they will need to seek out a warrant to do so. Um, and there's some kind of squishiness in that. I mean, there's a clause that enables law enforcement in if they can identify an emergency that exists, which there's not a lot of context for that, um, that they need to would need to obtain a warrant within 24 hours of the search. Um, but ultimately, the uh, technology itself cannot be used as the sole basis uh, for establishing probable cause in a criminal investigation, and that's pretty important uh, piece of this legislation. Um, also notably, uh, law enforcement agency must disclose the use of facial recognition technology on a criminal defendant to that defendant in a timely manner prior to the trial. So, you know, there's a couple of measures within this particular bill that um, provide a fair amount of protection to those that are uh, accused. Finally, let's talk about exoneree compensation. We unfortunately received news last week that HB 423 was vetoed, which we'll get into. But can you first talk about what HB 423 would have achieved and how this bill came to be? Yeah, so so prior to uh, the governor's amendatory vetoes, um, this particular bill would have provided uh, $60,000 per year of financial compensation for each year wrongfully incarcerated and $25,000 for each year wrongfully required to be on a sexual or violent offender registry or um, wrongfully supervised. Those are kind of like the high ends of this particular piece of legislation. Um, there's some other measures in there for providing uh, some um, security on uh, resources available for housing and, um, and education assistance and those kinds of uh, more peripherally supportive uh, pieces of things. But the, the, biggest part of it really was providing meaningful monetary compensation for the first time ever to exonerees in the state. HB 423 was passed by the legislature and made it to the governor's desk. Can you tell us about how it made its way through the legislature, the session, and what happened um, recently? So I think I would start just a little bit further back than this session, actually, because I think it's really critical to understand that House Bill 423 actually was preceded by House Bill 92 in uh, the 2021 session, and that there was four plus years of work that went into the making of House Bill 423. House Bill 423 um, was meant in a lot of ways um, – Senator Usher re referred to it as a cleanup bill. And, you know, what I think he means by that is we had this existing piece of legislation on the books, House Bill 92. It had primarily the same, um, the same intent it is to 
compensate exonerees in the most expedient and painless way possible for the years of their lives that were lost to wrongful conviction. And, you know, we know between the 2021 session and the 2023 session that how that piece of legislation played out in reality um, was pretty complicated in some ways for the the one individual who had actually applied for and was trying in earnest to make their way through the process. We kind of knew that those things were going to happen because um, a few things that uh, we had put in place to, or we had hoped to put in place to safeguard the process in and of itself were derailed in the 11th hour by the governor's office in the 2021 session um, when he his office uh, issued an mandatory veto that um, involved the counties in a novel uh, comp- a, a novel funding process and um, and you know worst of all put a sunset provision on the bill so we knew that we were going to have to come into the 2023 session um, fighting for the bill in its own right um, because of that sunset provision but we also knew that there were some pretty significant um, changes that needed to be made in order to really realize the intent of the bill um, and not stymie uh, exonerees at every step in the process from uh, getting some meaningful relief uh, out of the very piece of legislation that was supposed to provide them meaningful and expedient relief. Um, So we came in with, you know, having spent the interim session talking with all of the various stakeholders, um, really dig, digging deep into uh, Cody Marble's experience, trying to make his way through this process, and um, and then bringing that information and education to the various stakeholders. Um, and when I say various stakeholders, I mean all the folks that we had invited to the table back in 2020, um, to start talking about exoneree compensation. So, you know, the county attorneys were um, invited to have conversation with us about how they were feeling about the bill in in actuality at this point. Um, they had been at the table, of course, since prior to House Bill 92 being introduced. And um, the governor's office, of course, uh, Representative... Bill Mercer was invited to, you know, have conversation with us, actually asked, please, to have conversation with us. And because the novel funding concept uh, was an idea of his uh, in the 2021 session. Um, And several of those parties did come to the table again in the interim to discuss and um, and talk about how the bill could be improved upon in addition to being reauthorized. When HB 423 made it to the governor's desk this session, can you tell us what happened? Well, um, <laughs> it, it, it's a little complicated, actually. Um, so 
at the end of the session, uh, again, in the 11th hour, the governor's office came back with an mandatory veto. Um, the, I, I will say, too, that, you know, this bill had an incredible margin um, to to get it through on the Senate floor and uh, and make it to the governor's desk. Um, but when it made it to the governor's desk, um, the decision was made after a lot of uh, discussion that the governor would issue once again in a mandatory veto, um, once again reintroducing that novel a funding mechanism that had been a point of contention after Representative Mercer once again introduced an amendment on the floor, and then the Senate uh, committee came back and said, no, th- you know, this particular um, aspect of the bill has been discussed incredibly thoroughly by all of the invested um, parties, and this we believe is the way that um, it's going to best realize its intention. Um, the governor's office disagreed, uh, wanted to go back to that uh, amendment that had been suggested by Representative Mercer. Uh, and, um, and and then also wanted to put in some language about uh, really kind of getting at expungement marijuana uh, convictions and saying that uh, exonerate compensation was not to be made available for any crime that uh, had once been illegal and was now made legal. Um, so the uh, mandatory veto comes forward. Uh, it makes it through the House, and unfortunately, the Senate uh, Sinai died before the bill made it through the Senate, uh, even in its amended form uh, coming out of the governor's office. So then um, it's sitting on the governor's desk once again in its original form, and the governor has to make a decision about whether or not to just let it ride, sign it, or veto it outright, and the decision um, has been made to veto it outright. So because the vote was so favorable um, and by such a wide margin, uh, the bill itself automatically um, comes up for the opportunity for uh, our electorate to override the governor's veto. And that's where we're at. A couple of clarifying questions. Can you explain um, a little bit about the novel funding mechanism and why we oppose it? Sure. It's it's kind of, it, it might seem like it's not important to, uh, you know, someone who, who has not spent a lot of time hearing uh, hearing Cody's story uh, coming through this. Um, so this is not supposed to, uh, exonerate compensation is not supposed to be a relitigation of the innocence or guilt of somebody who's already been exonerated. It's supposed to be um, a, a hearing on whether or not compensation is appropriate under the 
funding uh, under the funding mechanism under this particular piece of legislation. So unfortunately, what's happened is when the mechanism got put in that the counties would be responsible for a significant portion uh, under House Bill 92, it was 70 percent and the state responsible for 30 percent. And then Cody went ahead and filed so what it, what ended up happening is it, it meant the difference between the uh, state having a fund available specifically for this purpose and giving it its reasonable um, process, uh, w- you know, with a f- sort of fair and open uh, approach, as opposed to we know the counties are at the end of the day, it's an insurance company that's paying for it. And an insurance company is going to want the county to fight as hard as possible to not have to have a payout at the end of the day. Um, and I will say, too, that I think that there's a couple of folks who, uh, you know, a couple of folks, prosecutors who feel like it's an opportunity to um, have a second crack at at a trial, um, even though that's not the way that it should be. Uh, so this time around, it's a 50-50 split that the governor had wanted uh, put in. So e- even more incentive for uh, the county to really want to litigate this to the nth degree, which actually just then goes completely against the idea that it's supposed to save taxpayers' dollars. Because if we're spending money fully retrying these cases after these individuals have been exonerated, um, that costs money too. All of that costs money. What is the impact of this news on our clients? Well, um, at best, it means uh, more time, more time between the time that they were exonerated and the time that they may receive some measure of meaningful compensation for that uh, injustice. At worst, it's a feeling of being put in limbo, I think. Is there going to be the funds um, made available uh, you know, will will that fund remain and will the time go through? Will the county turn around and say, oh, no legislation and so moot? I, I really think, I, I mean, the governor's office made a statement about, you know, believing that individuals who have been wrongfully convicted um, are deserving of meaningful monetary compensation and like that was kind of their response, you know, and wanting to sort of kick it to the Senate saying, oh, you, you know, shut the show down too early. And I guess I'm just sort of I'm so over the finger pointing on it, because if you are going to make a statement saying that you believe that individuals who have been wrongfully convicted and are now exonerated are deserving of compensation, then we shouldn't be sitting around arguing over who gets the bill at the end of the day. The state is responsible for for the harm and and the error that has happened here at the end of the day. All prosecutors are acting under the authority of the state.
What are your personal takeaways from this legislative session? Well, I don't have to um, say out loud, really, that this has been one of the most challenging legislative sessions that I think most all of us have seen. Um, I think that when there has been um, so much divisiveness and so much uh, polarization that it's hard to get any satisfaction. I mean, by all rights, we had a successful legislative session. Um, Quite honestly, the, the things that we worked on as an organization personally, um, you know, there was a protocol fix push for death penalty. That lost by the narrowest of margins. Um, but that's a win. Um, there, you know, we just discussed eyewitness ID lineup, facial recognition technology, um, and there were some other, you know, things that came out of this session that were good and surprising and do give me hope still. But the kind of the kind of things that matter for moving forward in a meaningful way are really strained. Um, I think this is the first legislative session that I've seen where folks who, you know, from opposite sides of the aisle that have considered themselves colleagues and even friends um, have been, those relationships have been strained in a new way. Um, And I think that we need to double down on compassion we need to double down on integrity and we need to really call out individuals who we've elected to represent us that have proven that they're really there representing themselves um, and not their constituents I know the legislative session just wrapped up but can you tell us what you can about how the Montana Innocence Project will engage in the interim session Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be like speaking too soon. Uh, if, in fact, um, we don't see a successful override of the governor's veto on House Bill 423, we're, we'll be there at the very first Law and Justice Interim Committee meeting once again talking about exonerate compensation. Um, we are not going to stop until until there is meaningful um, justice in in some measure for those folks who have lost years of their lives to wrongful incarceration. So that's, you know, that's kind of first and foremost, of course. I hope we don't have to be there for that. Um, I'm holding out that that sliver of hope. Regardless, we will, we're always going to be there monitoring uh, the conversations around issue areas that we care about, um, you know, beyond the scope of actual innocence. The Montana Innocence Project cares about human dignity, cares about uh, 
you know, liberty and, and so we're going to be in the room and having, um, conversations with our representatives to learn about how they view those issues and, uh, and where we need to be paying attention as we uh, draw ever nearer to the 2025 session. Justice is a Montana Innocence Project podcast. The artwork was created by Rob Truax and the music was composed by Corey Fay. To learn more about the Montana Innocence Project, visit our website, mtinnocenceproject.org, or follow us on social media at Big Sky Innocence. To submit a case, visit our website and click on the Request Legal Assistance tab. Thank you for unpacking injustice with the Montana Innocence Project.